0: Remarkable people overcoming remarkable challenges with resilience, dedication, community, and grit. Listen as they share their stories of overcoming adversity. Open your eyes to what is genuinely possible for all of us. Authentic Adversity with host Chris Howe. Welcome back for another episode of the Authentic Adversity podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with a former Marine MMA fighter a junior Olympic boxer he currently works as a carpenter and I mean this guy has done too many podcasts to even mention um in the last year and a half or two um it's 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 really quite amazing his stuff is all over the internet his story is absolutely you know phenomenal inspiring and uh you know I really want to thank Tim Lodgen for coming on today
1: Hey, Chris, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share my story with your audience. And I hope, uh, you know, my goal is just to connect with one person. And, uh, you know, if I connect with one person today, I know that I've done something good, uh, uh, you know, with my message. So that's all I want is one person to hear my message today.
0: For sure, for sure. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, that's that's the thing, like social media can be used for, uh, there's so many people using social media for negative things, but I mean to get a message out there, tell your story, um, use platforms like this to to give some inspiration and hope to other people who might still be out there sick and suffering. I mean, that's I think that's our duty as people in recovery.
1: Oh, hundred percent. I agree with that. You know, and for so long I was so lost and I didn't know my purpose. I was like, why the hell am I here? Like yeah. what what am I supposed to be doing? Right. And then it was once I got sober. And started living recovery and reading and really working on myself. Yeah. You know, it finally dawned on me. Holy shit. I went through all of that hell so I could just share my story. So mm-hmm. people didn't feel alone. They didn't feel as if, you know, they were the only person going through that pain. Yeah. You know, how could anybody possibly know what I'm going through? You know, this is all me. Yeah. When there's so many of us out there going through the same stuff. And yeah. the more that we share, the more people we can help the less people we lose to this disease.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And isn't it kind of, uh, it's it's really interesting that we all have that, that terminal uniqueness, like they talk about in the rooms, right? Where we think like nobody else understands and you know they haven't gone through this or they haven't, they're not me. This is my story. And sure, everybody owns their story. Um, and I, I believe that the details for everyone's story are completely different, but the emotions that we go through are all the same. And we can all relate to one another um, as people who have been sick and suffering and today have pushed through that and live a you know a healthy life in recovery and um you know i i really think i really think that these messages will do just that you know give that little piece of hope for somebody who's still out there
1: oh yeah 100% like you said everybody's story is different we all have different stories we all have we've all lived different life our circumstances are all different right but the end result has all been the same that's right you know, we're, we're we're all in the same boat together at the end and uh, we can all help each other and listen and learn with each other and help each other grow. And that's a beautiful thing in recovery. I got to tell you, you know, not too many people wanted to deal with me in my addiction. (laughs) Um, I can't, I can't imagine why, but, uh, (laughs) it's so cool to have so many people with like-minded goals and, and aspirations. Right. And we all help each other and we all like, we all got each other's back and it's just an amazing community.
0: It is. And that community is so important, Um, you know, to have that fellowship with, with people who have gone through it and been there that can kind of pass down those, those tidbits of, of useful information and, you know, actionable steps that we need to take to get to where we need to be in life.
1: No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yep. Um, okay, so like let's get into your story, Tim. Um <clears throat> I wanna I wanna first know like what was it like for you growing up. Um, where did you grow up, what was the environment like, um and and sort of uh what was Tim like as a kid?
1: Sure. Um well you have listened to my podcast, but I'm I'm gonna go through it for your for your uh audience. Do um, it, do it, yeah. I, I, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. I've lived here my whole life. The only time I did not live here was when I was in the Marine Corps and I was stationed in North Carolina, but um you know my my father was a police officer. Mm-hmm. My mother actually was a professional bodybuilder when I grew up as a child. So yeah. that was kind of a little different in the 80s um women bodybuilders <laughs> were kind of odd. Yeah. So um but there was no drugs and alcohol in my house. There okay. wasn't there wasn't liquor in the cabinet, there wasn't beer in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Um I've maybe seen my mom drink five beers in her entire life and she's 73. Wow. So yeah, and she wouldn't even finish them. She'd just sip it at like eating crabs or at a function, and then just forget about it. Jeez. My dad would drink like a normal individual mm-hmm. at a holiday party or a cookout or something, but I I never saw my father drunk either. So okay. it, it was I I wasn't surrounded by that.
0: Right, right.
1: My father did leave my mother when I was uh, in first grade. So I think I was six or seven. Okay. Um and. I will tell you that affected me greatly. Mm-hmm. I have a brother who's almost eleven years older than me, so I'm going in the first grade, and my brother's going to be a senior in high school. Right. And for me, as as a six year old boy, I thought it was my fault. You know, Christ. what did I do to make my father leave? Did I not yeah. listen? Did I not clean up the room? Did I not be was it not a, not a good boy? Like, mm-hmm. and and I held on to that. For a very long time, and when they split up, he would call and say, "Hey, I'm coming to get you. Pack your bags." Right. I cannot tell you how many times I sat at the front door with my bags packed, and my father didn't show up to pick me up. Oh, yeah. It it got it got to a point where where he would call my mom and say, "Hey, have Timmy pack his bags. He's going to spend the weekend with me." I wouldn't even pack, and my mom would be like, "Why aren't you packing?" I'm like, "He's not coming. I'm not going to sit in front of the front door anymore and waiting for him not to." come or to call it last minute oh something wow. came up I can't I can't get you buddy so yeah. that that further made me really feel like my dad wanted nothing to do with me like what the hell is wrong with me right. you know why did he stick around so so long with my brother but he he left me when I was in first grade so later in life as I got into my addiction I use that sometimes to to drink and drugs. I really did. Okay. Um I I would tell myself, you know, well my own father didn't love me, so who cares? I, I'll just get drunk or I'll just get high. Right. If my own parent didn't love me, then why should I love myself?
0: Yeah, it's it's really it's unfortunate. unfortunate your self your sense of self-worth at that young of an age is is so affected by this and um and yeah and carries through the rest of your life like that. You know, or at least in addiction like that, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when, when you're active in addiction, you know, we look for every justification reason to uh, to use.
0: Sure.
1: And um, it doesn't take much. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. Yes. But, you know, um, when, my, when my dad left, my mom really kept me busy. She got me into sports. Um, I played little league baseball for eight years. Okay. And uh, I was a star. I was an all-star pitcher on the, on the team. And the reason I mention that is because I go through my story. I played football. I was the all-star running back on the football team. I got into boxing in 6th grade and by 8th grade I was fighting in the Junior Olympics and Golden Glove Championships. I came right. in 3rd place in Junior Olympics. Wow. Also in also in middle school I started skateboarding and within 2 years I was sponsored by a bunch of local skate shops down here okay, and um, cool. I grew up I I grew up with Brandon Novak from Jackass and Viva La Bam. Mm-hmm. He actually lived like 3 streets over from me and we would skateboard together all the time and he was friends with Bucky Lassick, and I would be able to skate with Bucky every once in a while when he was in town. Wow. So oh, I grew cool. up I grew up I grew up with some really big heavy hitters in the skateboard world. Yeah. And once I got into high school, um, I still didn't drink and drug. I was I was all focused on sports. But mm-hmm. ninth grade, we had a welcome to high school freshman party. Okay. And my, my buddy was hosting it and I went That's the very first time I ever tried alcohol. And we had a bunch of seniors get us us beer, and it was uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon and Colt 45 Malt Liquor. Okay. And I got so sick, man. It was like, it was bad. The next morning, my mom picked me up, and she looks at me, and she's like, you drank last night, didn't you? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, I'm not going to punish you. Your your whole rest of your weekend's ruined. That's going to be your punishment. Okay. and uh, we're having a cookout today, and I need fifty ears of uh, corn shucked. She's like, "So what you're going to do is you're going to go in the basement and shuck all fifty ears of this corn. Here's a bag for you to put the corn in, and here's a bag for you to throw up." And oh, that no. was my <laughs> <laughs> I know. I had to sit in the basement and shuck these ears of corn while I was throwing up in the, ba- in the oh, paper bag. Oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> but that deterred me from from ever drinking again.
0: It worked. So right. all through
1: high, yeah, it, it did. Yeah, no drugs, no alcohol, nothing. And then I got to senior year of high school. Now the scene, the the summer before senior year, I was like, man, I'm not, I don't have grades getting to get college, mm-hmm. and my friends were all starting to get in trouble with the law and starting to do drugs, and I was like, I really don't want to do that. Right. So I signed up for for the Marine Corps. So when I got into senior year of high school, I knew once I graduated high school, the month after I graduated, I'm going into boot camp. So I was like, let me have some fun this year. Let me go to some parties. Let me just get it out of my system. Yeah. Because at the end of the season, when I go in the Marine Corps, it's going to hit the fan and it's going to get real. So let right. me have some fun. So I started going to parties. And for me, it wasn't to fit in. It wasn't to be popular. I was a very popular kid in high school. I had a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. It was just, I was in that mindset of, let me get it out of my system. Right. So I started going to parties and I started drinking. Well, I found out that once I started drinking, my barriers went down and I started looking at the party. What else is here? Mm -hmm. I might Mm -hmm. as well try it because (laughs) at the end of the year, I'm not going to be able to do all this. So I started smoking pot, started taking pain pills. Uh, started tripping on LSD, started right. eating mushrooms, mm-hmm. um, started smoking PCP. Um I will say this, I'm so thankful heroin and cocaine were, were not in my area at the time because I definitely would have done that because right. once I once I, once I got the alcohol in my system, I was like I had to eff it. I was like, you know, forget it. I'm just gonna do it. Sure. That whole senior year, my whole senior year, I drank and drugged. Anything that was around the parties, I did. Wow. I graduate high school, and I go into the Marine Corps. The drugs stopped. 100% the drugs stopped. Okay. But once I graduated boot camp and I got stationed at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, when we got off at 4 p.m. every day, a bunch of us would leave the base and go to the bars and go to the strip clubs, and we would drink. Right. And the bars around the base, their motto was, if you're old enough to take a bullet for this country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. Okay. So they would they would serve us at 18, 19, 20 years old. Their only rule was you couldn't stand at the bar with a beer in your hand. You had to take a sip and put it back down at the bar just in case an authority walked in. They couldn't pin you. Oh, you got the beer and you're underage drinking. Right.
0: right, But they,
1: they had no problems serving us all night long. And as 18, 19, 20 year old men, we would see our sergeants at these same bars, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And they're doing the same thing, right? And they would just tell us, "Don't get locked up, and make sure you're up at 4 a.m. to go running and doing all your um, uh, calisthenics and, and what we have to do for the day. Right. Other than that, we don't care how long you stay out and how messed up you get. Just don't get in trouble. And make sure your ass is up at 4 a.m."
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So for young men who are learning from these older individuals, at least for me, I was kind of like, "Well, this is this is what we do." You know, this is kind of like a badge of honor. How how messed up can we get and still wake up at 4 a.m. and go run five miles and do push-ups and sit-ups and, and pull-ups and, and, and get the shit done that we were supposed to get done?
0: Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt yeah, you, Tim. No, um, go ahead. I, so I, I, I just – I see a real parallel in um in, in our story there. Um, You know, I work for the fire department, and, and I always found it – you know, now looking back, I always found it so strange that – that part of the culture the it, it is it's like a, a badge of honor like you can go and take shots all night drink you know pound back beers do you know whatever you're going to do partying but as long as you're there when the bell rings in the morning um you know you're you're like this you're like this unsung hero like it's it's a very strange <laughs> thing and but there the, the the line between the heavy drinker and the alcoholic in those worlds, it's like, nobody wants to be called an alcoholic. And if you get deemed an alcoholic or an addict, you're kind of pushed to the side. But if you're a heavy drinker and the party guy, you're one of us, right? Like you're, you're the, you're a tough guy or you're a, you know, you're, you're applauded for this, this sort of behavior, which I found, you know, now looking back, I find really strange. And it, it probably parallels a lot with the military that way.
1: Oh, a hundred percent, absolutely, and, and like you said, there is a line there, but but how thin is that damn line to where right. you're you're a, you're a party monster and you're a go getter and you're a hard charger and you're get the job done to, Oh, uh, I think you're drinking a little too much, and and maybe we should kind of like pump the brakes here. Maybe you need some help.
0: Now you're a problem. Where,
1: yeah, where's yeah. where's that line there? Um, because like you said, if as long as you're up there and you're and you're doing your job and you're there on time mm-hmm. and you're busting ass, it is kind of like man this guy can party and come to work and do his shit like, right so it, it it is um it's twisted. especially it, it is twisted yeah. and especially as uh, you know i'm looking back 18 19 20 years old you're a freaking baby yeah. you know what i mean and, and and you're learning from these adults right and that's what i learned that's that's what i thought i was supposed to be doing so i did it as a professional right you know i right. i i did it very very well <laughs> yeah. I have no regrets now. Um but looking back and, and I found a bunch of pictures a couple months ago and it was us at the bars and then there was pictures of me out in the parking lot throwing up and mm-hmm. I I'm looking at these pictures and I like I specifically remember the nights that we were out, right? The times we got into fist fights, you know, the the, the times that you know we went to these strip clubs and just all this stuff that I did. And I'm like, would I have done that? If I wasn't drinking. Right. And the answer was no, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have acted that way. I wouldn't have, you know, gone out with ladies of the night and, and all that stuff, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, if I was drinking. Right. And, um, it, it, I would say it affect me the other day when I saw the pictures
0: mm-hmm.
1: from where I am now and how I've progressed to learn my, how, I am and where I came from, I know it was just part of my story.
0: It's part of your story. I, yeah, I love that.
1: And, and, and that, and that's just, that's it. I'm no longer there. And if I wouldn't have done that, then maybe I wouldn't be who the person I am today is. So I'm actually grateful that I went through that to be able to share my story with such uh, truthfulness and authenticity. Because Absolutely. if I wouldn't experience that, who the hell would I be to be able to Show you my my story exactly, but um yeah, so, so I was in the Marines, and I was drinking, we were drinking every day and nineteen ninety five my unit um we went to Somalia for a couple months to do training now, this was not during wartime, there was no war going on. I'm not a combat veteran, but we were there after um it was Operation United Shields. So we were there for it's they call policing the place, which is basically cleaning up and security. So we were there, and I got to see the ramifications of what war did to a third world country,
0: right right.
1: And when I came home, I had about three months left before I got discharged. And when I came home, um, I, I was affected. Um, i I got out and I came home. and the first month was kind of cool. I was kind of like, man, I don't have to get up at four o'clock this morning. I ain't got to go running. I don't have to have I don't have to shave today. I don't have to get my hair cut it was kind of a decompression like okay cool i'm out of the military i can relax a little bit the second month came and i was like oh shit i got to get a i got to get a job right. um i got to start paying some rent here i moved back in with my mom um i got to get a car i got to start taking care of some responsibilities the third month came when i was home and i fell into a deep depression i stopped showering i stopped shaving i didn't want to leave my bedroom i'm now drinking Every single day, because that never stopped. But now I'm doing drugs again, because now now I don't have any drug testing. So I fell right right back into where I was previously from going into the Marines. I came home and started hanging out with all my old friends from high school and started going to parties and started doing everything that I did before. That third month, I was sitting in my bedroom, and I was beating myself up. How could I go from this athlete to this Marine to now I'm home, and, and I'm I'm telling myself I'm worthless. I'm a piece of shit, and I, you know, I don't have a job. I don't have a vehicle. I can't pay my rent to my mom, and I'm beating myself up. And I, I go into my stepfather's armory one day, and I pull out his gun and I sit it on my lap, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there looking at it, and, and I'm honestly lost. I don't know what to do. So I call my girlfriend at the time. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm. I'm sitting there looking at this gun on my lap. I don't know what I'm doing. Wow. And within five minutes, she came to my house and she took it from me and put it back in my stepfather's arm. And when my mom came home from work that night, I didn't tell her I had my stepfather's gun on my lap, but I told her something was wrong. I'm not feeling myself. I'm depressed. So she said, well, we need to get you to the doctors and see what's going on. So she made some appointments for me. We got to the doctors. After going through all the 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 medical testing, they came back and told me I had bipolar one disorder, manic depressant. And their first solution was to get me on medicines.
0: Oh God. Can I, can I just ask you real quick about yeah. the, the, about, um so the exit plan or strategy from the military, I think this is really important to touch on like, what is that reintegration process like? And I know that it's, you know, quite some years ago, but um you know, are they, cause it, it really boggles my mind to me that they're, they're, you know, the military trains you to be, you know, uh, like a certain type of person and, you know, capable of certain things that civilians aren't, most civilians aren't. And I've always wondered what that process is like. And are you or do you feel like you're prepared to come back into, you know, regular life as a as a civilian? And, you know, were there were there things in place or did you was it like here's here's your you know here's your pay go ahead you know this stuff is here but you have to seek it out
1: that's exactly it in 1995 when i got out i was discharged here's your dd 214 your discharge papers right here here is a packet to the um veterans affairs location in in your state and you contact them for any further assistance here you go here's your bags here's the bus to go home
0: and that's, that's it. it it's up to you then was- it's up to you then to to make those phone calls to pick up that thousand pound phone when things are like you said in month three now you know dealing with I'm sure there, there's a level of PTSD from the things that you saw over there and then and your childhood experiences as well as your time um, you know using and abusing drugs and alcohol like we all pick up these traumatic events along the way but to add to that that you know you're you're visiting a war torn country seeing the fallout of that um you know I, I it boggles my mind to me that there's not a mandatory program to say you must go through these steps and you have to do this testing to for us to know do you are you um capable of reentering society after what you've seen you know
1: you you would you would think so and hope so but unfortunately yeah. it's almost um it's like okay, well, you're 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 out of the military now. You're no longer used to us. Good luck. That's basically how uh, it it used to be. I'm pretty sure it's probably the damn same now. Um, so, it might yeah. be they might be a, they might be a little better now. I mean, we're talking ninety five, so we're almost thirty years ago, twenty seven years ago, twenty six years ago. Right. But when, when when they handed us the papers, that was literally here's your discharge papers. Here's your bus ticket. And here's the packet to the VA in your state of Maryland. Um, when you go home, make the phone calls and get in and talk to your VA counselor and psychologist and psychiatrist. But thanks for your service. Take care. And it's on you. That, from that's there. it. Yeah, that's it. You know, and in the '95, PTSD wasn't a thing like it is right. today. There was right. there was no PTSD was not even an acronym. It didn't it didn't exist back then. Yeah. Now you can't you can't tell me the government didn't know that these these Marines and these soldiers coming out of combat they were not messed up mentally and physically. Of course. They, yeah. they absolutely did, but they didn't have a program set up like they do now as far as post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: And and not only that, but like, I mean, and I can speak to this too in my profession, like the idea of talking about that to somebody else, to another, you know, man to man, and, and the, the attitude that goes along with that job, this like, suck it up, you know you're paid well to do a job this is your job you're lucky to have it you know these these cliche things be a man suck it up walk it off you know this sort of and and don't talk about your feelings like i was told on day one of the fire department never to show weakness because we prey on our weak around (laughs) here you know what i mean and i and, and i and i know that that's the same in in the military and you know that that attitude and that that kind of um that like sort of mantra that goes goes along with these first responder um professions i mean it it really stifles a lot of people from asking for the help or talking about what they're seeing even peer to peer
1: no i'm dude i'm so glad you brought that up cuz um i actually every thursday on zoom i hold a men's mental health and addiction um counseling one hour show on on zoom and it's oh, really? open to the public yeah, it just started last week. Um, I'm working with a 5013C3 nonprofit rockstar testimony, Love Light to the World. And I run the men's mental health department on that. It's every Thursday at 7 p.m.
0: Perfect. I'll add it to the show notes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, because um, I, just,
1: I just finished my second week doing it. It all came to head about three weeks ago. They worked out all the kinks on the website. and cool. um, But now I do the men's mental health section. I'm also running... Actually, this Friday, um, I leave to go to Half Moon Bay, California. Okay, I'm being flown out there to speak on mental health and addiction to first responders, military, wow. um, police, fire, EMT, on the mental health and addiction part of the trauma that we all see. Amazing. And I'll be out there from the 23rd to the 25th speaking at this uh, second annual fundraiser for the Overwatch collection, which are two former Marines, both police officers now. And um, what they do is they try to give back to the men. And the reason I'm saying that is because you you are 100% correct about the professions that most men do. Right. Suck it up. Man up. You know, don't talk about your feelings. Um, But the truth of the matter is, even men believe it or not, go through trauma. <laughs> yeah. Men men get abused. Men get raped. Yep. Men are supposed to be the strong uh, you know, part of society where we don't have any weakness. Right. The true bravery, the true courage is admitting that we have weaknesses and doing something about it and, and sharing your story and being open about it. Just like you and I are speaking now, mm-hmm. you know, you and I, if, if uh, we were walking down the street, most people would probably walk across the other side um, just because, you know, we, we you know, we, we, we're, we're alpha males. We don't, we don't look like we're very friendly people sometimes. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I mean, it is, you know, we're not soft looking people.
0: I get what you're saying. Yeah. But
1: man, we go through it. We go through it too. Yeah, we we go we we go through it, too. And um, you don't have to be a fighter. You don't have to be a firefighter. You don't have to be a Marine. You don't have to be some, you know, person who's in great shape. And looks like you could tear your head off of somebody to not have feelings. We all have feelings and we all go through shit. And we need to know that it takes more strength and courage to admit that and speak about it than it does to hold it in. Absolutely. Um, there's no bravery and in, 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 in not holding or holding in your feelings and not speaking about it. Cause all that's going to do is implode. And when it comes out, man, there's going to be some damage.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we all know that. And, you know, by keeping it in, you're doing more harm to yourself and you're not giving other people the chance to, you know, to, to have that door open to a conversation about emotions, about feelings, about stuff that guys are typically not supposed to talk about. Um, and I think the more more people like us who are just you know able to freely share this information and speak from the heart and not you know with no fear of judgment, I think that's I think that's what needs to be shown a lot more. And I think that that is what will encourage others who might be in that sort of box, you know, that like I oh, no I can't I'm I look like this or people expect this from me or I'm whatever the, you know, a firefighter, you know, a cop, military, whatever it may be that isn't supposed to show their feelings and, you know, emotions. If we're talking about it, then they can, right. We're giving people the chance to, to to open that door to a conversation that needs to be had.
1: Yeah. And and it goes hand in hand with addiction. The the longer you don't deal with it, the more it compounds, the (laughs) more it gets bigger and the stronger it takes you over. And, it's amazing. It's not amazing, but it, it's not uh, surprising to me that it goes hand in hand because it's just you, when you're in addiction, you, you're we're basically just numbing out the feelings and pain of something that we don't want to deal with, and then we realize we're numbing out the pains of the stuff that we don't want to deal with, and we feel bad about numbing out the pain, so we numb out more because we still <laughs> yeah. don't want to feel about it.
0: It's yeah.
1: It's a compend. it's just that the cycle goes on and on and on, and before you know it, you're so deep in the hole that. For me, I wanted to give up. So, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, I, when I got to talk to those doctors at 23, the first thing was to put me on medicine. And right. I'm bringing that up because I wasn't honest with my doctors. I didn't tell them I was drinking every day and I was, I was back doing drugs. Okay. So the medicines that they were putting me on were not working. So when I went back every 30 or 60, 90 days, whenever my checkup was to see how my medicines were doing, they would say, how's things going? Mm-hmm it's not working doc, I don't know what the problem is, I'm still depressed, I'm, I'm still having my manic episodes, um, right. I still can't sleep, I'm still having racing thoughts, I don't know what the problem is. Okay, well maybe those medicines weren't for you and we'll just switch you over to these medicines. Right. I'd go back another 30, 60, 90 days, how you doing? Same thing, nothing's working. Okay, well maybe we'll put you on these three and we'll up the dosages, maybe the milligrams are off, maybe those that cocktail didn't work, so we'll stick you on this cocktail. If you go to see a doctor and they diagnose you with some type of mental illness or mental disorder and they put you on medicines, please be honest with your doctors because they don't—they only know what you tell them. Yeah. So they're they're, going—they're—they're going off of what you're telling them, and if you're not being honest, if you're being distruthful, and you're not indulging them that hey, I'm—I'm doing all this extracurricular stuff. Yeah. And and the medicine that you put me on isn't going to work anyway. Yeah, what's the, what's the real, what's the real issue then? Like and let's, doing let's more down.
0: damage on top of that, right? Like, Ab-
1: absolutely. Yeah. And, and and being the the addict with the addictive behavior, and seeing that pill bottle that said, "Oh, alcohol intensity effects."
0: Okay, <laughs> right. sure. Let's go. Yeah. You know,
1: and to me, it was an extra party because now I got my own thing prescribed by the doctors. I have some alcohol. Got me some extra effects. (laughs) Yeah.
0: This episode of the Authentic Adversity Podcast is brought to you and sponsored by Another Road Drug and Alcohol Treatment Center. Another Road offers a client-centered recovery program tailored to every individual's circumstances. Their focus is to create a supportive healing environment rather than a rigid, rule-based institution. Their dedicated commitment upholds the individual values respecting each person's desire for recovery. Another Road understands that every individual requires a unique and focused approach to their recovery. Certain modalities of treatment are introduced along with the tools necessary for each client. Located in a rural setting, their addiction treatment center for all genders provides the perfect setting for a transformative recovery experience and sense of belonging. The private residential treatment facility offers an unparalleled program with counselors that have in-depth knowledge based on varying years of experience in addiction. Another Road utilizes unique individual focus plans for recovery that address the complexities of drug addiction, alcoholism, and prescription medication misuse. They have a 65% success rate when clients follow their program. I know many people who have completed this program and they have absolutely rave reviews. To learn more, visit anotherroad.ca. Your doctor's prescribing you meds. You're lying to him about it. Now you're drinking to intensify the effect of these medications.
1: Yeah. So you know that went on all the way up until I went to rehab at the age 44. Wow. Um, I, I would be on and off medicines. I would get to the point where I don't need this medicine anymore. It's not working anyway. So I would just stop taking it. And after a month or two, I'd have my crashes and be back to the doctor, getting back on medicine. Okay. And that was just a cycle for 20 years. It, it really was just on and off medicines. And, um, you yeah, know, I, I got into my 30s and I, I'm now married with two girls and I just lost another job. And I've been employed 46 times since being out of the Marine Corps. Wow. And I attribute that to my mental illness and my addiction and alcoholism. Okay. You know, I I was, I never had control of it. I would keep a job for three months, six months, sometimes nine months and just quit or call out sick and just not go back or just get bored of it. And I never really pinpointed why I just tell myself, oh, this just isn't the job for me. I'm just not passionate about it. Let me do something else. Right. And the fact of the matter is I, I didn't have my mental health um, in check and I wasn't taking care of myself. And that's why I, I it from job to job, to job, Yeah. but I got, I got to the age of 32 and I just lost another job. My wife's like, what's going on? I'm like, I, I don't know. i just, um, I'm lost. I, you know, I miss, I miss competing. I miss sports. I miss you know, feeling like I'm worth something. And she's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I really want to do mixed martial arts. I said, I miss that one-on-one contact I missed that competitive spirit and she's yeah. like okay she's like I will give you one year okay she's like our, our bills are paid you're collecting unemployment she's like one year if you can get fights and you can you can make some money and it makes you happy but after one year if we're not doing anything with it you've you've got to let it go and you got to get back to work so I said okay so I went down to the local gym um, ground control who's ran by a gentleman named John Rollo here in Baltimore and uh went down there and started uh training and within like five months i had my first fight and fast forward three years later i'm still fighting and now now i'm uh fighting the harris casino atlantic city i'm fighting on television i got sponsors but i I wasn't making that much money like 1500 bucks a fight you know right right. the, the local shows you don't make too much money but i was i found my purpose for a while you know there's no drug or alcohol than I can ever compare to coming out of the locker room with the music going and the lights going and people cheering and clapping. Dude, That that adrenaline rush that you yeah. get when you're about to step into a cage is unmatched by anything I think I've ever been through, including the Marines, because you know it's one-on-one. It's you or him, and once they lock that cage behind you – that's it. It's game time. It's like, it's go. And that, that feeling was just incredible to me. So um, I'm, I'm now 35 and I'm, I'm fighting Harris casino and it's, it's live uh, broadcasted on the East coast. And I tear my rotator cuff doing a rear naked choke. And um, I get to the end of the match and, and I go to the locker room and I can't lift my right arm. I have my trainers looking at me. He's like, what's going on? I say, I don't know, man. I say, I, I can't lift my right arm. It's burning, like all the sensation. He's like, okay. So I go out to the casino area and I have like 25 of my friends and family there. And my wife right. comes up to me and she hands me a beer and I grab it with my left hand. Now, even though I, I-, I write and draw with my left hand, I'm right hand dominant. So I can use both my hands. And she's like, why'd you just grab the beer with the left hand? Like she noticed it all immediately. Yeah. I'm like, I, I can't lift my right arm. She's like, What do you mean? I'm like, I did something to it. She's like, Jesus Christ. She's like, That's it, you're done. She's really? like, You're thirty, you're thirty-five. She's like, You're done. Um, she's like, We gotta go to the doctors and see what happens. So I go to the doctors, I tore my labrum in three places and had to get rotator cuff surgery, like within a week, it was like immediate. Oh wow. Okay. so I get, I had major major surgery on my on my rotator cuff, and that started a four year long pain pill prescription addiction that was prescribed to me by my doctors. Wow. And it first started with hydrocodones and, and I would go back after my 30 or 60 days when the script was up and he would say, hey, hey, how you doing? Doc, I'm, I'm still in pain. you know those hydrocodones aren't really taking edge off. okay, right. we'll, we'll we'll switch you to percocets. We'll give you perk tens. Go back after 30, 60 days. How's, how's that working? Um, the perks are working, but they're messing up my stomach because they did. They just they knotted my stomach up for some reason. Okay, well, we're just going to put you on Oxycontins because that seems to really work for everybody. And uh, we'll mm. put you on 20 milligram Oxycontins. So now I'm taking 20 milligram Oxycontins. I'm drinking a 12-pack of beer a day, and I'm smoking probably about a quarter of weed every single day. Right. And this goes on for four years. And, and like every good addict, you know, I wouldn't take one pill every four hours. I would take two or three every four hours. I would finish my prescription two weeks before it was getting refilled. So I'd have to call my buddies and say, hey, can you can you hook me up for the next 10, 12 days until my prescription gets refilled? Yeah. So I was getting it off the streets. And, um, you know, I, I got scared. Okay. I, I I literally was in the in my bedroom one day and I was like, man, this is how people die. I'm, I'm taking all this pain medicine and I'm drinking all this alcohol I could go to sleep one night and not fricking wake up. Right. And, and I don't want that to happen. And my addictive personality, my mental illness steps in and says, well, if it's going to happen, we're going to do it by our own hand. And i reach over to my nightstand and I open up my bottle of Oxycontins and I dumped it out of my hand, had 18 of them. Right. And I take, I take all 18 of them and I go out into the living room and I, and I slam a 12 pack of beer like in an hour. Yeah. And I go back into my bedroom and I remember laying on the bed saying, please, God, don't let me wake up because I just want the pain to go away and I don't know how to stop. Right. And I go to sleep and I wake up the next day, like 16 hours later. And I remember waking up being like, holy shit, I woke up um, and I go into the bathroom where my refill is sitting on the counter and I open up the bottle and I dump all the entire refill down into the toilet and I flush the toilet. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I don't care how bad this gets We're never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days, I was probably the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. Right. You know, the whole, the whole gambit of coming off opioids, the racing thoughts, the jitters, the night sweats, the insomnia, the panic attacks, the anxiety, the going to the bathroom, the throwing up, the fever, the, the whole think but every morning when i woke up i would look in the mirror and tell myself remember this feeling we're never going through that again that was the last time i've ever taken pain medicine wow and but you, but i but i i couldn't stop drinking i just couldn't stop drinking yeah so for me i was like yeah let me take a ride i gotta clear my head so i get in my truck and i go through this park that we have down here in Maryland, it's a really beautiful reservoir where people take their boats out and go hiking and walk their dogs and picnic. And I'm driving through the park and I get to this tree where, um, my senior year of high school, my best friend lost control of his car and hit the tree and, and unfortunately died at the age of 18. And at this tree, his parents set up a little visual. They have a picture of him on the tree. You can put flowers on the tree and there's a book there still from 1996. Oh, wow. That you can write, that you can write in and, and just leave them stories. And like every couple months, they'll put a new book because the book fills up. Wow. And, and um, I, I get to the tree. This is March 16th, 2017. So this is 21 okay. years after he passed. And I get up to the tree and I'm like, Bill, I'm like, man, I'm lost, brother. I was like, I, I can't stop drinking. I'm an addict. I, I'm losing all these jobs. I, I'm disappointing my family, my friends. I, I just don't know why I'm here. I need to know that I'm not alone. That there's something else out there. Because to be honest with you, I had no faith in anything. Right. I, I I couldn't comprehend if there was a if there was a higher power somewhere out there that I would be suffering so much and so many other people would be suffering if there was such thing as a higher power. Yeah. So I was like, you know, please just send me a sign that I'm not alone. That there's something else out there that I have a purpose in life because I truly don't know why I'm here. And and I get in my truck and I go to leave the park. Well, now I'm crying and I can barely drive, so I pull over on the side of the road, but I didn't pull over on the right-hand side where traffic was. I I pulled over on the wrong side of the road, facing oncoming traffic in that park. Okay. And I'm sitting there crying for about 10 minutes, and this car pulls up, and, and we're hood to hood, bumper to bumper, and I'm watching this man. He gets out of his vehicle, and he opens up his back door, and he gets his dog, and he's about to go walk the dog across the street where the water is. And I'm looking at this man, and I'm like, man, he, he looks awfully familiar. Okay. And then all, all of a sudden, it dawns on me, it was my best friend who died December 27th, 1996. It was his father. Wow. And I, ha- <laughs> I, had, I hadn't seen him since the day of my friend's funeral 21 no years earlier. So I get out of my truck, and I, I'm like, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he looks at me. He's like, Timmy. What's, what's going on? Why are you here? And, and I fall to the curb and I start crying. I'm like, Mr. Bill, I'm an, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what my purpose is. I'm, I'm lost. And he walks over to him and he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he's like, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in South Carolina at a family reunion trip. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. this morning. He said, my wife came to me in a dream last night. And told me to come walk the dog this morning at 10 a.m. He goes, I think I was here to send, I was sent here to see you. And I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to send me a sign that I wasn't alone, that something else was out there. And we hugged and we talked. And and he was like, everything's going to be okay, Timmy. You know, they're watching over us, everything's going to be okay. And I go to leave the park. And for about 10 minutes, I'm like, man. You know, I'm feeling good. I'm like, there's something else out there. I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Everything is going to be all right. I'm, I'm being watched over. Nothing's going to happen to me. And then all of a sudden, my mental illness, my addiction steps in and says, you're absolutely right. Nothing is going to happen to you. You're being protected. So you don't have to stop drinking anymore because oh. nothing is going to happen to you. You can continue to live your life the way you respect the way that you are because you're being protected and watched. So for the next four years, from two thousand seventeen to two thousand twenty one, to the day I went to rehab, I drank the most alcohol I've ever drank in my entire life.
0: Isn't um, that wild, man? Like that—that that, you know, you 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 finally there's your sign, right? Like there's your <laughs> your I I'm not alone, and and our you know our addictions can warp that that positive message, that that real piece of hope, something to grab onto, and kind of pull yourself out of that deep dark hole but we twist it and say okay now we're invincible we're being watched over let's go <laughs> it's like
1: that addiction is cunning baffling and um it doesn't stop until it takes your life and Certainly. that's its goal yeah. that's its goal and it manipulates you to to what it wants you to do um, and when you're powerless over that, you, you tend to listen, unfortunately, yeah. to what it's telling you. Right. So, you know, the, the next four years, um, 12 beers went to 18 beers some days and the regular beer wasn't doing it for me. I switched to the IPAs and the lagers, the 10, 11% beers. And I was still drinking 12 to 18 of them, right. which is equivalent of like double that of regular, like Miller Light or,
0: yeah.
1: or the regular beers. And uh, I'm 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 like man I'm missing something you know I'm just missing something because now I don't have the pain pills right and I'm I'm, I'm missing that cocktail because I, I I I like the way the pain pills made me feel and drinking some beers I like that that warm blanket fuzzy feeling that you got yes so um I started drinking some whiskey I, w- I would start off with a couple little miniatures of Fireball whiskey and I found that once I took two or three of them. I would get that warm feeling that right. pain pills gave, gave me. And it was almost instantaneously. Once mm-hmm. it hit your system, you'd have that euphoria of that, of the whiskey getting in your body. So I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Now, now I found what I've been missing. So over the years, I, I stopped drinking um, beer and I just switched straight to whiskey. Okay, And my, again my my addictive personality steps in and, and told me don't buy a big bottle of fireball whiskey cuz then you'll know exactly how much you're drinking <sighs> yes buy the little miniatures you know you can drink them and throw them out the window or throw them in the trash and forget how much you're drinking and you can hide them all over the place and and when you want one you can go swig one down and throw it away and nobody will know exactly how much you're drinking
0: yeah and you know what it's hilarious <laughs> that you say that because i'm like laughing because I can completely understand it. And like any alcoholic or addict would totally get that that concept. But anyone who's not one of us is like, what the fuck's this guy's problem? Like, why not just go big? Why, why What's, you're, you know, taking these little shots of these mini bottles and, and, but it does make it like we try to manipulate our own selves to think that, no, you didn't just drink a 40 pounder. You didn't just drink this much. These are just minis. And and yeah. who knows how many you've had, like, there's no, it, it, it almost alleviates us for, for the accountability of, you know,
1: what we're taking in. 100%. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, it would be kind of cool sometimes opening up my medicine cabinet or, or, or moving a coffee cup and finding a bottle there. I'm like, oh shit, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm in my sock drawer, in my truck, you know, and, um, <clears throat> but um yeah, it got to the point where I would wake up and stop at the liquor store at 7 a.m. in the morning, mm-hmm. and I would get a sleeve of Fireball whiskey, which is 10 of them still in a pack. And I would drink all 10 of those by 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Right. I, w- I would finish work, get off at 3.30, and go immediately to the liquor store before I even went home, right. and I'd get another sleeve of Fireball, I'd get 10 more, and I would drink all 10 of those by 8 o'clock at night. And if I was feeling it, I'd get my ass back in my truck and go to the liquor store and get 10 more Yeah. and drink five to 10 of those before I passed out. Mm-hmm. So right before I went into rehab, I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures a day. Right. And one day I was kind of like, I wonder how much alcohol is in here. So I, I poured out one of the miniature bottles and one miniature is two and a half shots. Okay. So, so... two and a half times 30. I did the calculation like a couple months ago. I'm drinking anywhere between 70 and 85 shots of Fireball whiskey Jesus. per day. Yeah, for over for over a year and a half, and it got to the point where I got an, I got a brand new truck, and I'm leaving the liquor store. The truck's like two months old, and I'm leaving a liquor store, and I hit something. And I have, I still, to this day, do not know what I hit. I don't know if it was a parked car, a sign, a concrete barrier. I have no idea. But I get home, and I park my vehicle in the driveway. And I walk in, and I told my wife, I just hit something. I'm going to bed. I'm not dealing with this shit tonight. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Okay. And I go to sleep. I wake up the next morning like a good alcoholic. Hey, good morning. <laughs> I'm going to go to the store and get some water and some milk. And you guys need anything from the store? And she just looks at me. She's like, how are you going to do that? I was like, in my brand new truck in the driveway. She's like, Tim, go look at your vehicle. So I go outside and my side passenger mirror is completely off the truck. And my right passenger tire is hanging off the rim and the rim's up underneath of the, the bumper. Okay. I, literally, I don't know how I drove it home. Yes. The only thing I can say is I was a block away. Like the liquor store is almost across the street from my house. I'm pretty sure I just got in it and was like, fuck this. I'm going home. Like I'm getting right. into my driveway and I'm sitting there looking at the truck and I'm like, what the hell happened? And my wife pops her head out the front door. She's like, you have no, no idea what you hit last night, do you? And I said, no, I, I don't remember. Wow. She said, Tim, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else.
0: Yeah.
1: You can't, you can't stay here anymore. I don't want you around the girls. You have to leave and go figure this out, but I don't want you in the house anymore. I say okay, so um, I go inside and I pack my bags, and I call a friend of mine. I'm like, "Hey, bud, is there any way I can come and stay with you for a couple of days? You know, let things blow over. In a couple right. days, she'll forget, and I can come back in the house and just proceed with my 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 life." And he's like, "Sure, man, come on over. Come over for as many days as you need." So I go over there, and he's like, "You know, your wife just kicked you out. You don't have to go home. It's Friday night." We might as well go to the bar. And I'm like, you know what? Absolutely. Because now I have a justifi- justified reason to go. My wife right. just kicked me out. So I'm I'm going to go drink, you know, because now it's a legitimate reason to drink. So I go to the bar and we get shit-faced. And less than, it's like 12, 16 hours later, as I'm leaving a bar, I rear-end somebody at a red light. Wow. And, and I get out and I look at the guy. He actually had a uh, tow hitch on the back of his truck. So his truck was absolutely wasn't not a scratch on it, but now the front of my bumper's all V'd in. And I'm like, are you okay, man? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'll say, well, your truck's okay. You're okay. Right. I'm out of here. And I slapped him on his back and I, I bolted. I got out of there. And um, if the cops came, I was going to jail. I was drunk. And yeah. so I, I get back I get back to my buddy's house. I'm like, man, I can't stay here. I, I just got to go be by myself. I I, I got to go think about what the hell's going on. Right. And I leave his house stop at the liquor store and I get 10 more miniatures and I go and I park my car at a park and ride, which is, you know, where people park the car for the day and catch a train or a bus to, the, sure. to their job. Yeah. And I sit down and I turn my phone off. I'm like, I don't want to hear from anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to sit here and wallow in my sorrows and do the whole pity party. I'm a piece of shit thing and, and don't want to be bothered. And for the next two days, for 48 hours, I sit in my truck and I drink and I pass out and I listen to sad ass music and I do the whole, my kids are better off without me. My wife's better off without me. My mom deserves a better son. Like I'm just a piece of shit. I don't deserve to live. And I drink myself and pass out and drink, excuse me, and pass out and drink and pass out. And finally, the second day at 7 Minutes after 10, on March 5th, 2021, I turn my phone on after 48 hours. Two minutes goes by and the phone rings. And I look down at it and it says Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm like, who the hell is this? And so I, I pick it up. And it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak, on the other end. Right. And, and he's like, lodging. What the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, I'm, I'm cold. I'm drunk. I'm hungry. I'm tired. And he says, good motherfucker, that's what you need. He said, I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. I have a plane ticket set for you this evening. You're going to go down to Banyan Treatment Centers in West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're going to go get the help you need to save your life. And I'm on the other line. I'm like, yeah, okay, man. Okay, I'll go. I'm will go." i pretty much just agreeing with him so I can hang up the phone at that point. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah.
1: And um, he's like, get on that plane. Get on that plane. And he hangs up. 10 minutes goes by, I think, and my wife calls. She said, hey, um," I just cut off the phone with Brandon. Where are you? I'm like, I'm at the park and ride. She's like, please come home, pack your bags, take a shower, take a nap, and and try to get something to eat. I had about four hours for the plane to leave. Okay. I'm like, like, okay, okay. So I go home, I take a shower, and I pack my bags. I can't eat, and I can't sleep because now I'm having an anxiety attack. I'm having a panic attack. I'm my, my mind's racing. I'm like, oh my God, how did I get myself in this situation? Yeah. Now I got to go to rehab. How long am I going to rehab for? Is right. it 30, 60, 90 days, six months? I don't know. And I got to go down to Florida. Like, holy shit, my life, I just ruined my life. Like, there's, how, how did it get this bad? And I'm sitting on the edge of my bed. And I'm like, man, I, I can't do this. I, I'm like, I'm so nervous. And I'm just thinking about everything. And um, my my mental illness steps in one last time and um, it tries to take my life because um, it doesn't stop. It, yeah. it doesn't stop. It tries to take your life. And it grabs me by the hand and says, come with me. And my addiction and mental illness walks me to the basement of my home and it throws a rope around my neck and I stand up on a bucket. And it tells me to end the pain, and it tells me to jump. And I go to the basement of my house, and I put the rope around my neck, and I stand up on the bucket. And um, about a minute, maybe maybe two, goes by, my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom. So she comes looking for me.
0: Right.
1: She comes down to the basement of our home and sees me in the corner of our basement, standing on a bucket, with a rope around my neck, hysterically crying. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I can't do it. I can't, I just want the pain to stop. And I don't know how I just want it to stop. And she looks at me and she's like, Tim, do you know what this would do to your little girls? Please, please get down and get on that plane. Please get on that plane and everything will be okay. Just get down. And, uh, about a minute goes by and and I take the rope around my neck and I fall to the floor and I'm crying. And, uh, 10 minutes goes by and I go upstairs and I call my buddy. I'm like, hey, uh, I got to get on that plane, man. If I don't get on that plane tonight, this addiction is going to kill me. And I I, I, want to live. I can't do that. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you're past security because I want to make sure your ass is getting on that plane and you're not going to catch a cab and leave the airport. I'm like, okay, okay. So I hang up the phone. After some hours. Goodbye. My mom comes and picks me up and drives me to the airport. And I get past security and I call him. I'll say, Hey buddy, I'm a, i am I got about 35 minutes for the plane leaves. I just want you to know I'm, I'm past security. I'm getting on the plane. And all he says is I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything that you've lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone.
0: It's just like, like, I mean, addicts in recovery, that are living the life that they should, they just know how to talk to somebody who is sick and suffering and, and in that place. Cause we've all been there in one yeah. way, shape or form. Right. And just to hear that I'm proud of you and I love you. And to give you those words of encouragement. I mean, that, that, that there, like those, those three simple things can do so much for somebody who's at that place in life. Right. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's, cause it's amazing. When,
1: when, when you feel worthless and, um you don't know why you're here and, and how much of a piece of shit you feel when somebody tells you they love you and they're, and they're proud of you. Yeah. That definitely, that definitely does something. It um yeah. gives you some motivation. It gives you some encouragement. It, it gets rid of your doubt for, it's, it's in some sense, you, you know, it kind of like, I can do this.
0: And somebody um, loves you when you can't love yourself. They, <laughs> they're, they're, they're acting as your higher power at that moment. Right. Like, even, even though I know you don't love yourself, I love you. And let's do this, right? Like that is yeah. so powerful.
1: And- it's amazing. You know, and as I hang up the phone, as I go to sit down in, in, a, in a chair waiting for them to call me to board my plane, when I sit down in this chair in this airport, I get this overwhelming feeling that comes over my entire body. It was a warm blanket feeling that I have never felt in my entire life. At that exact moment, as I sat down, my worry, my panic, my anxiety, my doubts, my fears, all leave my body at the same time. And it was the most amazing experience I've ever felt in my life. And as I'm sitting there and this warm feeling is coming over my body, I hear this very loving and gentle woman's voice in my head say, Everything is going to be okay. It was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever felt in my life. I and I knew at that moment, sitting in that airport, finally, after 27 years, at the age of 44 years old, I was right where I needed to be to save my life and to get the help I needed. Wow. If I were not to acknowledge that experience in that airport. Yeah what a waste of life this would have been. Something happened to me in that airport. I truly believe I had a spiritual experience in that airport. And since that day in that airport, I have not once thought about drugs or alcohol. I have not craved drugs or alcohol. I have not wanted it. I have not thought about it. I I believe that the power of addiction was taken from me at that airport. That experience was, was too powerful for me not to acknowledge. And when I got on that plane and I got to rehab, I, I went addicted mode into rehab. Um, yeah. I, didn't miss, I, I didn't miss any meetings. I went to extra meetings for fire, police, military, and EMT. Cool. Um, yeah. I, sh- I, shared, I shared my story. I volunteered. I did all the homework. I started working out with a personal trainer Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I changed my diet. Um, I started believing in a higher power at that point because what happened to me at that airport was undeniable. So I started believing in a higher power. And um, it, it changed not my life. It changed me as a human being. It changed me as a man, as a husband as a father, as a son, something switched in my head. It was, it just, it completely 180. And um, I'm now focused on sharing my story. You know, I, I was so lost. I didn't think I had a purpose. I didn't think I, it was a reason for me to be here. And there was a gentleman in rehab. He's like, I, I didn't share it first for like the first two, three weeks. Yeah. And, but I share, I shared with like, when there was like five of us together, five of us like really became kind of, kind of close in rehab and, and he's sitting next to me one day and we're at a meeting of 60 and he's like nudging me with his elbow. I'm like, what? He's like, share your story. I'm like, nah, man, I can't, I can't. Not in front of all these people. He's like, share your story. I'm like, nah, man. And he he did it for like a week. Every day while I sat next to him, he's like, share your story, share your story.
0: I'm
1: I'm like, I can't. He's like, Tim, he's like, share your story. I'm telling you. He's like, the way you share it, the, how, how authentic and truthful you are. He said, it's going to help somebody in here. Just share it once while you're here. Just share it. I'm like, finally, one day I was like, okay, you know, I'll, get, I'll share it.
0: You know, <laughs> yeah. whatever,
1: man. And I share my story and I so many people came up to me after, after me sharing and they were like, wow, thank you. I needed to hear that. Thank you. That was me. And so many of our, our parts in that story were similar. Um, I really needed to hear that today. That just gave me hope. You know, just a bunch of different things people were saying sure. to me. Yeah. And I was like, wow, man, there, there's there was something to me sharing today. That was pretty cool. Yeah. That's that's all I really thought at that moment. That was pretty cool. You know, I got some cool feedback. That's that's yeah. really neat. And um, I leave. I get out of rehab. I did thirty-two days, and I come home. And the first thing they tell you to do is find a home group. You know, find a sponsor. Mm-hmm. So I, I go and I'm looking for a home group and I'm basically, I, I download a meeting app on my phone and I'm like, oh shit, this one's only 10 minutes from my house. Let me go to that one. It's the closest one I found. Okay. So I, I get to it and it's called over the rainbow and I'm like, okay, it's this little brown building and I walk in and it's packed. There's like 30, 40 people in this place. Right. I'm like, okay, let me give this a shot. you know And I sit down like 10 minutes goes by and all of a sudden it starts thunderstorming lights are flickering at the bed. And then after five minutes, it stops. And a lady walks in from outside. And she says, everybody come outside and look at the rainbow over our building. Okay. And we all go outside, and there's a rainbow only over our building. No. And the and the, ske- the, the, <laughs> the, the sky's clear. And I'm like, I'm looking up at the sky. I'm like, okay. Okay, I get it. I'm right where I need to be. Yeah you know, you've been watching me. I have no more coincidences. Like I get it. Now you're sending me signs and I need to acknowledge it from here on out because something's happening. And, um, I, I made that my home group and I've been there ever since. And I did 98 meetings in 90 days. I found a sponsor. I started working the steps. And, um, after the ninety-eight and ninety, I, I dialed it back to four days a week because I wanted to start focusing um, more on balance of, of mental, spiritually, and physical. So, yeah, yeah, I got myself back into the gym. I started spending more time with my family. You know, going to work, I would go to work, come home, go to the gym, and then I would I would push my meetings to the weekends, two on Saturday, two on Sunday, and um, I found that helped me find my balance. It really right. did.
0: I think that's important to to mention because a lot of people go from living a life of active addiction straight into like I'm going to hit two meetings a day for 7 days a week and this is my new life and they don't they don't build a life outside of that outside of the rooms essentially right like they're not taking care of themselves uh physically um they're not building relationships with people outside of the meeting so it's all addict to addict or alcoholic to alcoholic you know um fellowship which is great but we also we're supposed to be out there as useful purposeful members of society that means being you know having relationships outside of the rooms having you know um passions and uh hobbies that don't involve sitting in a church basement and talking about absolutely. how bad it used to be
1: <laughs> right absolutely you know, and yeah i'm glad you brought that up because it got to a point where i mean i, I still I, I've dialed it back now. I do two meetings a week now. I make yeah. sure I, I still go to two meetings, but about three months into my recovery, um, I started following different people on Instagram. I'm like, oh, I'm going to start following some sober apps and, and some recovery pages and recovery podcasts. I was like, just to get some different information because unfortunately, when you go to the same meeting for a year and the same 40 people share their story <laughs> yeah. for the 1500th time, and you know, the next sentence that's coming out of their mouth, you have to keep it fresh. Um, it helps you to a point, and then it could become stagnant. I believe, for at least it did for me. I needed, I needed I fresh, that. I needed fresh information coming in.
0: Yeah, and you can so, always build a resentment for the meeting, for the meeting space, and the people. Where it's like, no, this is not what this is counterproductive to what this meeting is about and what I'm here for. So, right. what else is out there, right? Like,
1: absolutely, and you know, and one of the guys that I, I met online, he was like. Uh, I said, you go to meetings anymore. He said, I mean, I'll stop going to meetings. I'm like, why? He's like, because they're all stuck in 1986. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah. they all just keep bringing up how bad it was. He said, what are they doing now in their life to um, abstain and keep from drinking? What are they doing now positive? Are they giving back to society? Are they helping other addicts and, and alcoholics? He said, I don't need to know how bad it was 30 years ago. I need to know how right. good it is now. Yeah. I'm like, well, I never, th- I never thought of that. So um, about three months in, I was like, oh, these podcasts are really cool. I'm getting a lot of information because it was always somebody new. It was always a new story. And no matter who was speaking, at some point in their story, I connected with what they were saying, and it helped me. So I was like, you know, what? I'm going to message some podcasts. Maybe I'll do a podcast and just share my story. So I messaged like, I don't know, like literally like 20 podcasts one day. And four or five of them got back to me and said, sure, you can come on and share. So I get on and I do a podcast and it's my first one with knocking doors down. Um, Jason and Mikey out of California and I do the podcast and it goes good. And I think like two, two weeks later it airs and four days after it airs, I'm sitting in my truck, getting ready to pick up a table to take it to Brandon Novak's recovery house. And I'm waiting for the guy to open the garage so I can load the truck on, I mean, load the table in the back of my truck and the phone rings. And it it doesn't say any, any name. I just pick it up. I'm like, hello. And he's like, hey, is this Tim? And I'm like, yeah, this is Tim. Who's this? He's like, this is Tony. I'm like, and I, I really don't know any Tonys, man. I was like, I'm sorry. He's like, prophet. He's like, I, I served with you in the Marine Corps in 1995. And I'm like, oh, shit. Wow, man. You know, this is 2021. Right. Yeah, you know, tw- 26 years later. And um, I'm like, what's what's going on? He's like. I listened to your podcast four days ago. I'm like, that's awesome, man. He's like, I live in Ohio. He said, uh, I had to call you. I got your phone number off of Facebook. I hope it's okay. And I'm like, yeah, sure. What's going on? He said, man, I've been, I've been addicted to pain pills for 18 years. He said, and, um, I listened to your podcast four days ago. And he goes, I've been sober for four days. No way. He said, I, I had to call and tell you that your, your story has given me hope and strength and I don't want to live that way anymore. He's like, I've lost many jobs. I've been married a couple of times. You know, my, some of my kids don't speak to me. He's like, I just, after listening to what you said, I just had to tell you personally, thank you and I love you. And um, he hangs up the phone. And I, I sit in my truck for like 10 minutes and I'm crying. I'm like, holy shit. My, my story actually impacted somebody. Not only did it impact somebody, but I happened to know the person. How cool right. was that? And um, I talked to him every two to three weeks. He's coming up on almost 10 months sober now.
0: Cool. Amazing. And it
1: all stemmed from that one first podcast. So after I got that phone call, I was like, how many more people can I affect just by sharing my story? Mm-hmm. So that's when I just started uh, on this podcast journey. Um, today, sitting with you, this is my 63rd podcast in, wow. in a year. Um, I actually, as soon as we hang up, um, at 1130, I got to jump on another one and that one's from Germany. So it's been from all over the world and I've been getting so much feedback from so many different people. I get random messages telling me that my story has been inspirational and I'm not saying that with an ego. I'm saying that humbly because how could somebody like me who was such a piece of shit, such a hopeless and helpless person, be given this gift of sobriety and recovery and this ability to share my story, to reach out and, and, and help others. I truly believe now that the 27 years of my mental illness and addiction didn't happen to me, it happened for me. Yes. It happened for me to become the man I am today, to have the ability to share my story in hopes that it could reach people who are out there suffering with mental illness and addiction so that they know that they're not alone, that there's help out there. And that at the end of the day, we can all truly live and become the person that we were always meant to be. And even if I help one more person, that's one less person that we could lose to this disease of mental illness and addiction. So I'm, I'm grateful for what I went through. I'm grateful to give them this opportunity to share my story with you and your audience and with so many other people. And, I, and the opportunities that I've been given in sobriety to, to be flown out to different states and and speak to to men of, of you know, and women of first responding people and military and, and give them hope and courage and strength yeah. that they're not alone, that there's so many more of us know exactly what they're going through. And we're all here to help. And, and there's no amount of money that, that can be put on the feeling knowing that you've given somebody hope and encouragement. It's amazing. And I'm truly blessed to be alive. I'm truly grateful to wake up every morning and have a brand new day sober with with clarity and know who I finally am in life when I was so lost for so many years. yeah, And I didn't even know if I was going to wake up the next day. So... I I'm just I'm grateful and thankful and blessed to be alive and, and have the opportunity to to share my story with you and so many others. It's just an amazing journey I've been on.
0: Yeah, man. And and honestly, you do it so so well. I mean, this is I I the the reason I connected with you is I heard you on uh, a couple of podcasts that I had been a guest on as well. Uh Courage to Change with Ashley and the Off the Rails guys. Um, you know, and I, I just, I really, I, I listened to your story and it did exactly that. You know, I, I, I saw so many parallels and I related to so many pieces of it and it gave me a lot of hope. And, um, you know, and, and I'm grateful to be able to sit down with you and, and you know, share this story with you and, uh, you know, be a part of your journey. And, you know, and now, you know, we can connect and, and stay connected, which is the beauty of recovery and, you know, the power of social media when it's used for the right thing. So Absolutely. I mean, Yeah, man. Um, So I I will, I don't want to keep you much longer because you're off to your 64th (laughs) podcast, but I just real quick before, before you go, um, where can people find you? And, um, you know, if if there's any uh, questions uh, related to stuff you shared about, or, you know, I know that you're a pretty open book and you respond to everybody who reaches out. So just maybe drop your, uh, your handle, your IG handle and wherever else anybody else can meet you.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. My main page is on Instagram and it's at T Lodgen, L-O-D-G. And and like you said, I, it's completely open. I, I answer any messages that are that are sent to me. I try to help as many people as possible. And if I can't help, I try to shoot them in the direction of somebody that can. Um, I, I'm part of a 5013C nonprofit called Rockstar Testimony. And I'm now running a Zoom meeting every Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. For men's mental health and addiction awareness, and I will shoot you that link over so you can put it in the in for the sure. bio. Hopefully, we can just continue this journey and keep reaching people and helping people as much as we can. And thank you for allowing me to come on to your show and and share my story with your audience. Um, it, I'm truly humbled, and I appreciate meeting you, and I appreciate you having me on. It, it's um, it's it's such a pleasure to be able to share my story with so many people. It, it's dude, it, it this stuff blows me away that my life has turned around so much and in and, mm-hmm. and a year and a half. How much more is to come and, and I'm 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 just open arms and I'm waiting for it all to come so I can help as many people as possible.
0: For sure, man. Well, I'm truly grateful for you, for your story and for your openness, honesty, honesty and and true vulnerability, man. I mean, I just I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I want to thank you for just, uh, you know, being who you are today. And I wish you many more days of sobriety, recovery and, you know, growth. So thanks, Tim.
1: Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. And thank um, you as well, man. Uh, congratulations. And I'm proud of you as well, brother.
0: Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you.